so much, Mike. Uh, you know, as I uh, travel and uh, take care and pastor and shepherd other pastors, this has been a crazy year, a hard year for so many of us. I think for pastors in particular, the, the undue uh, uh, you know, position of having to try to please everybody during an incredibly hard year. You know, you, you're not talking about this enough. You're, not talking, you're talking too much about that. Uh, mass, no mass, politics, racial strife. I mean, pastors... We're getting arrows shot at them all over the place. And I think our pastor, Mike, has carried us through an incredible difficult time with so much grace. I just so much appreciate you, Mike. And, and if, you're, if you're ever wondering, Mike, the, the guy with the fuzzy slippers, that, that was me the last 12 months. That was actually me. So, uh, Happy Mother's Day to all you mothers. I want to say a special Happy Mother's Day to my mom in Shelton, Washington, Judy Stark, watching on her 1997 desktop. Um, I love you, Mom. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, my mom was uh, uh, an educator her whole life, uh, and for uh, uh, at least a five-year section, she was a preschool teacher, and, and uh, my brother and sister, I used to love to hear her stories about these little ones, because they were just so funny, and, uh, and her stories reminded me of a story that I, I heard recently of, of a preschool teacher, uh, and she's got a little art class with her, her little ones, and uh, she's wandering around and looking at all their nice art projects, and, and she sees this little girl, Susie, and, and she can't really tell what she's drawing. And so she says, Susie, so, so tell me what it is that you're drawing there. And, and she says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And, and the teacher, you know, wanted to be encouraging, but also theologically correct. And so she said, well, you know, Susie, nobody really knows what God looks like. And Susie said, well, they will when I'm done. <laughs> My hope is that when I'm done today, that we'll know God a little better and specifically, we'll know what he has to say about who our neighbor is. And that's the title of my message today, Who's Our Neighbor? Do you pray with me? Holy God, we're so grateful for an opportunity to gather together. I ask that you would open up our hearts and minds, that we might hear you, and Holy Spirit, that you would move me out of the way that you might speak. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. I want to draw your attention to uh, some actual comments from some government officials. These are not necessarily Phoenix or Arizona government officials, but they are actual government officials from a city councilman. As far as the city is concerned, there is not a noticeable difference in the way that Christians and non-Christians are neighbors. Uh, from a city mayor, uh, the majority of the issues that our community is facing would be eliminated or drastically reduced if we could just figure out a way to become a community of great neighbors. Well, Jesus gave us a genius solution. When Jesus was asked to reduce everything important into one singular command, he gave us a simple and powerful plan that if acted upon would literally change the world. What would our communities look like? What would our households, uh, the, the neighbors that we, the neighborhoods we live in, what would they look like if, if the people who attended our churches if they decided to become committed to loving their neighbors. The, the kingdom of God potential is, is astounding. It's, it's unlimited. But, but how do we do this? Well, uh, we live, especially after this season, right? We live kind of in a nation of strangers. We, we, we don't really know who our neighbors are, who lives in our community. So first we have to move from strangers to acquaintances. And then we have to move from acquaintances 
to significant relationships. That's your first fill-in. We have to move from strangers to acquaintances and then from acquaintances to significant relationships. But how do we do that? Well, first, we have to turn the noun, neighbor, into a verb. Neighboring. As in, The Art of Neighboring. That's actually an incredible book by Dave Runyon and Jay Pathak called The Art of Neighboring that I've, I've drawn some for this message today. Being a good neighbor... Bethany Bible Church, it's an art form. A gospel-centered, biblical art form. So we have to be committed to being great neighbors first. The problem is, I think, when it comes to loving our neighbor, we've turned a simple idea into a nice thing. You know, we we see it on bumper stickers and we see it on T-shirts, but we actually miss the part sometimes about putting it into practice, which is truly the point of why Jesus gave us this idea. So this morning, this morning, let's listen to what Jesus said, and then let's do what Jesus did. So if you have a Bible, a handheld device, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 25 and go through 37. Probably very familiar to many of you. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And, and just so you know, when the, the word test there, it actually can be translated test or tempt. You see, this wasn't just an academic question that he was asking Jesus. No, no, he was, he was setting up this uncredentialed Galilean rabbi and trying to trap him with his response. So he says, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when, when you and I, when we hear the word, eter- the phrase eternal life, the first thing we think of usually is Heaven, right? I mean, that, we, we, when we hear eternal life, we're always thinking heaven. That's what, and, but in Jesus' time, they would have had a little different thought. In, in Jesus' time, eternal life is not so much a destination, but it's a way of living. To, to have eternal life for Jewish people is to live here and now as citizens and ambassadors of the kingdom of God. Yes, heaven someday, but just as important, Christ-likeness here while we're on earth. Jesus replied to him, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? (laughs) He's saying, hey, bub, you're the religious lawyer. You tell me. And so he does. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Like a good religious expert in the law, He is well-trained. He's been to Hebrew school. He knew his stuff. That is, he knew the Shema. That is the ancient Hebrew confession of faith that sums up the law succinctly by using Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And Leviticus 19.18, which says in part, Love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer answers his own question. The way to eternal life is loving God and loving your neighbors. Or another way to understand it, we love God by loving our neighbors. Jesus responds to the lawyer. Do this and you will live. In other words, it's not enough just to know it, to believe it. We have to do it. Now, the expert in the religious law did not trap Jesus But he did get some answers, and he could have just walked away. The conversation could have been over, but no, he's got to ask one more question. 
The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Who is your neighbor? When Karen, my wife, and I moved here 26 years ago from Seattle to Phoenix, it was quite a culture shock in so many ways. Uh, For one, we moved from the land uh, where there really weren't very many fences uh, to the land of impenetrable block walls. Uh, we'd never seen anything like this. In, in Seattle, if, if you wanted to, you know, chat with your neighbor, you kind of you found where the property line was, where your, your lawns kind of merged together. And on a Saturday morning, you went and you see your neighbor out there. And so you'd wander out and, and with your cup of coffee in one hand and, and, and your umbrella in the other hand in June. And, and, and you know, you have a conversation. And, and when we moved here, I was like... I, I, I know I have neighbors, I, there's houses around me, but I've never actually seen my neighbors. It's been weeks, we moved into this house, I'm starting in this new church, and I've not seen my neighbors. I see cars go by, and garage doors go up, cars go in, garage, I, but I actually am not seeing my neighbors, and I'm kind of an extroverted guy, and I was kind of going a little bit crazy, so I, I set a, a chair out on my driveway, and I, I just wait for cars to go by and say, hi, hi, I'm, I'm Pat. You know, hey, hey, yeah, and, and, and this wasn't working so well. And so um, this one time this, I see this car go by and the garage door goes, so I kind of hustle over there, right? And the garage door's up, the car's going in. I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm Pat, I'm, I'm your neighbor. I'm, and, and the garage door starts going down. I'm like, I, I'd love to have you over sometime um, to, to my house. I'd love to meet you. I, I need friends. <laughs> my wife, smarter. And, and better half was a little more strategic than I. She actually would put our three young children in a wagon and haul them around the neighborhood in search of homes that had trikes, bikes, and cozy coops in front of their homes. And then she'd knock on the door and she'd say, Hi, do you have kids my age? Great, let's do a play date. Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? We can just kind of fly right by this very important question. But as we examine it, we realize the lawyer is asking a limit-seeking question. You see, he's aiming by asking this question to identify the non-neighbor, that one who is beyond my moral obligation to seek out and love. That is, the lawyer wanted to know, who are the people that I'm not expected to love like God? But Jesus, as he's prone to do, he takes the question and turns it on its head by using a questionable character in the following parable, beginning in verse 30. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and left him half dead beside the road. This parable is the only parable in the Gospels with a specific geographic location. Why? Uh, Because the road to Jericho was notoriously unsafe. It descended 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho via switchback curves, which made it an easy place to ambush someone, rob them, or worse. And so when Jesus' audience heard this, they knew exactly where he was talking about, and they would have kind of had an internal, if not external, response saying, oh, well, what an idiot. Why would anyone walk alone 
down to Jericho. Uh, the, the guy, sorry, but he's, he gets what he deserves because you, you got to be stupid to walk down this road. And I think that Jesus was banking on his audience contempt for the robber's victim because by the end of the parable, Jesus will be seeking to replace the judgment with compassion. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over, looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. By the way, this parable could also be entitled The Tale of Two Selfish Jerks because the priest and the Levite, they see the robber's victim, but they pass by on the other side. They create more distance between them and this man in need. These were religious leaders charged themselves with loving their neighbor. Their call by God was to introduce people to God's love and they fail miserably. Maybe they were running late for a temple board meeting. Maybe they were thinking about their sermon prep that they were, you know, behind on. Uh, maybe they were afraid by being near someone who might be dead, they'd contaminate themselves and be unable to perform some of their tasks. Whatever the case, nothing should have come between them and helping this man left for dead. The priest and the Levite are stark examples of indifference. It's when we think, that's not my problem, or you know, that person is not my problem, we actually become a little like them. Let's pick it up though in verse 33. When, despi- when a despised, then a despised Samaritan. Okay, just let me just pause just right there. A despised Samaritan. Now when you and I hear the, the, the phrase, a good Samaritan, or the story of the good Samaritan, we have all kinds of great feelings. In fact, you probably even use this term in, in day-to-day practice. Like, oh, she is such a good Samaritan. She is always doing things for people. He, he is he is. Man, that guy is a good Samaritan. He helps out everybody. When we hear good Samaritan in our minds, the the hero music begins to play, right? Uh, Clint Eastwood rides into town. Uh, Superman shows up on the scene. Kyler Murray enters the game with a minute 30 left on the clock. That's what we think when we hear good Samaritan. That's not at all what Jesus' audience would have thought. In fact, some of them might have had a, a, an actual you know, outburst, a, a, an outward response when they hear Jesus introducing a Samaritan in the story. Like, Jesus, are, are you kidding me? You're, you're going to use a Samaritan in this story? How could you? Someone who maybe uh, who, who knew language would have said, well, Jesus, you know, despise Samaritan is actually a double negative because all Samaritans are despised. You don't need to say despised. They're all despised. You see... This largely Jewish audience, they would have seen the Samaritan as the epitome of the anti-hero. An evil, vile, spiritual and ethnic half-breed. That's how they would have viewed this person. Just so you can kind of get a feel for what it was like when they first heard this story. The Samaritan is the last person you would think Jesus would choose, but he did. Then a despised Samaritan, 
came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay the next time I'm here. The Samaritan's actions receive more detailed description than anyone else in the Gospels except for Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is describing what it means to be a neighbor. Listen, to act with courage. The Samaritan went into the ditch to help the victim, the man who had been robbed and beaten. He went into a place where he himself could have been put at risk to act with compassion. The the word compassion that Jesus uses is a deep, guttural, heartbreaking feeling that he had towards this man. To act with generosity. He used his own oil and wine to heal his wounds, and then he paid for the man's recovery at the inn. Now Jesus takes the religious lawyer's question, who's my neighbor? And he turns it on its ear. Now, which of these, says Jesus, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even say the word Samaritan. He says the one, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. So here's my concern. My concern is, that the story of the Good Samaritan, it's so familiar to us. It's so familiar that it can lead to a place of inaction. It can actually inoculate us against the implication of the story. You know, the, the lawyer, when he asks, who's my neighbor? He's asking this because he wants to define neighbor in a way that he'll always be found righteous. If his neighbor was someone he could choose, then he'd be okay. He's trying to soften the demands of what Jesus was saying. He was looking for loopholes. Now, now we, before we judge the lawyer, do, do we ever look for loopholes? Do you ever look for loopholes when it comes to loving your neighbor? Do, do we ever look for loopholes in what Jesus says is the most important directive for us to live out? Love God, love our neighbor? Well, Pat, you, you don't know my neighbor. I mean, my neighbor is crazy. And, and you know, they, they don't think the way I do, and they, they don't vote the way I do, and oh, they, ne- they always leave their, their, their yard a mess. And you know what? I, I know, I know. Full confession, I, I've had some pretty complex neighbor situations in my life, and man, I have looked for loopholes. Besides, some of you theologians out there may be thinking, you know, Pat, I, I think this, this, this scripture is a call to love and, and be neighbors with our enemy, isn't it? Maybe. You may have a point there, but I, I think this is, this is also where we can get a little lost. Especially if you've been in the church a long time, we hear this, this challenge to be a good neighbor, and we think, yeah, I know I've got I've to love my neighbor, but, uh, I, and I know what that means. It means that I've got to give more to missions, and, I, and I've got to help with human trafficking, and I've got to go across the border and build homes for homeless people, and I've got to sh- share my faith <clears throat> 17 times before next Sunday, and, and, and it's just so overwhelming that we get paralyzed. And, and, you know, all of that stuff is great. But I'm going to go ahead and put this in the category of graduate-level neighboring. 
All that is great. And if you're doing some of that stuff, keep doing that. But to me, that's graduate level neighboring. What I'd like to do this morning is let's just start with high school diploma level neighboring because that's, that's where Pat Stark needs to start. That, that's where we all need to start, I think, this morning. Um, what if we decided to love our actual neighbors? Let's just start there. Let, let's not think regional or global. Let's just start with our actual neighbors. Let's, let's take Jesus literally about loving our neighbors because I believe the creator God of the universe is saying to us this morning, I want to intentionally use you in this particular neighborhood that you live in because there is purpose and design for where I have placed you. God in his sovereignty has, has placed you exactly where he wants you to be and to practice the art of neighboring. And I know this is true. Do you know why? Go ahead and ask me why. why? I, I know this is true because the, the Apostle Paul tells us. In, in Acts 17, he says, He made, meaning God, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. This is a fancy Greek word, koitakie. What it means is dwelling. Abode, house, apartment, condo, duplex, mikasa, wherever you live, it means God has put you there on purpose. What if God intentionally, supernaturally, in his sovereignty, put you in a particular home to love those particular neighbors? What if you are right where you are supposed to be? What if this church, just this church, you know, we can't control any other church, but what if just this church, we decided to love our actual neighbors? And let me make it kind of more specific. Let's just pick a number. What if we decided to love our eight closest neighbors? I, I mean, I think if we, if we did that, I think we could actually change the world. So I did a little research, and, and I found out this. I found out that in, at Bethany Bible Church right now, there's give or take a few, but there's about 500 households who call Bethany Bible Church their home. Okay, so I got to do a little math, and I got to see it. So up on the screen, you got 500 Bethany Bible households. And if we, if we loved just our eight closest neighbors, that's 4,000 households. That's 4,000 households with who knows how many people are in those households that we could impact, that we could love, that we could introduce people to Jesus in what we say and what we do. So I don't want to leave you today inspired, maybe uncomfortable, maybe curious. I want to actually do this. I want us to practice the art of neighboring with our actual neighbors, and I want to do it right now. In your program, you'll see something that looks like a tic-tac-toe grid. If you're watching online, all you got to do is draw two lines horizontal, two lines vertical, and you're with us. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to put your name right in the middle. That's you. And the eight boxes are for your eight closest neighbors. And I want you to do a couple of things. We're just going to start with hopefully the easiest one. I just want you to put their names. 
If you know the names of your eight closest neighbors, the people that live next to you, the people who live across the street from you, around the corner, in your cul-de-sac, the eight closest neighbors, I want you to just put their first, if you know their last name, but at least their first name, if you know it, in those eight boxes. And we're going to do this right now. I'm giving up sermon time so we can do this together. I'm going to do it while you're doing it. And I, I do have a little bit of neighboring music to help us. So as that begins, then you all will begin writing names. Ready? Go. First names if you know them, last names if you know it. just the eight closest neighbors. Just put their name in there. As you're writing, it's a beautiful may, day in this As you're writing, you may remember something about that person. Like you may know, you know what, uh, my neighbor Bob, um, he is an uh, empty nester, and he's got like three grandkids. Just write down grandkids, empty nester. You may know something about I have always wanted to have a neighbor Now, some of you... You may know even more I've about your neighbors. You may know, for example, like, you know, went through a, a cancer scare last, uh, last month. Make the most of this beautiful you know, maybe has, has kids that live together, in a far-off land might as well or something. You know, so if you know something of mine, depth, then just go ahead and write mine, that in there. You be the goal neighbor. is to get as many won't names in those boxes won't as you know. Please, please won't okay. you be my neighbor. So here's what I want to do. I know this is just a start. Neighbors are people who are close to us. <laughs> and friends are people who are close to our heart. As you have written down like those names, I would like, I would, and this is a guilt-free zone, okay? I, I, do, I now declare this worship center a guilt-free zone. I want to know how many of you actually know all eight, of you could write all eight neighbors down. Okay, we've got a couple. All right, good job. Um, how about six? How many got six, at least six? How many got four? Okay. All right. So, so in, across the church world, and this will, this will probably be a little bit amazing to you, but across the church world, about 10% of church people can do all of number one. About 10% of the church knows all eight of their neighbors' first names. Uh, about 3%, about 3% know something about their neighbor, and a little less than 1% know something of depth. Bethany Bible Church, I think we can do better than that. I think we can do way better than that. So, here's my challenge. I want to challenge you by next week, if you know two names, learn another one. And I know this can be a little awkward and comfortable. I've lived next door to this guy for 25 years. I see him, but I don't know his name. Just ask him. Say, hey, you know what? Uh, We've never (laughs) introduced ourselves. I'm Pat. What's your name? Just meet your neighbor. Get to know one other neighbor's name, and then the next week another, and the next week another. And so the goal is to put this block max somewhere on your refrigerator, in your Bible, in your bathroom, somewhere where you're going to see it. Well, you're going to be reminded that we're called to love our neighbor, and we can't actually love our neighbor if we don't know their name, if we don't know who they are. Why do we do this? Now, now the goal, I, I just want to be really clear, the goal is not to know all of your neighbor's 
um, you know, by next week, all their names to get them uh, saved, baptized, and members at Bethany Bible Church by Thursday. That's not the goal. The goal is just to love them. Just to love them. This has been such a hard year. Don't you think your neighbor probably needs some love, even if it's just a baked good, an introduction, inviting them over for coffee, having them over for a a summer barbecue. And when you get to know a lot of neighbors, then it really gets fun. Then you can have a big old party with people who maybe have not met each other either. And you're introducing them, whether they knew it or not, to the art of neighboring by just having people over to your house. Be thinking about how can I love my neighbor? What do they need? How can I help them? What can I do? Why do we do this? We do this to connect our neighbor's story with our story and ultimately God's story. I mean, imagine what could happen if we just start loving our neighbors. Imagine what the Holy Spirit can do, what conversations will come up. We do this, Bethany Bible Church, we do this because God did this. Because God left his neighborhood at great cost, at great cost. And he moved into our neighborhood. And he bandaged up our wounds and our brokenness so that we would be healed. He showed us, God himself showed us what it is to love your neighbor. You never know the kind of impact you might have just by loving your neighbor. So Bethany Bible Church, let's be good neighbors. Let's, let's love our neighbors, get this, to the, degree, to the degree that people in the city of Phoenix say, you know what, I've got this neighbor, they go to Bethany Bible Church, they have been so kind to me, they have done things that I've never had anybody do for me in my life. I tell you what you've got to do, you've got to get yourself a neighbor who goes to Bethany Bible Church, that's what you need to do. What, what if that became, what if that became the mantra in our city, Bethany Bible Church, they're the best neighbors, they are the best neighbors. That's my prayer. That's my hope for us. Holy God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that your word is to us. And God, we pray that you would now give us the courage. Give us the courage. Give us the stamina. Give us the drive to love our neighbors. Just know their name to start with to get to know who they are. God, help us to love our neighbors so that we might see you and your Holy Spirit in us begin to transform their lives. God, that they might someday want to know who you are because we have loved them so well. God, that they would want to know why we follow you because we have loved them so well. God, that they might want to become a part of a church community like Bethany Bible Church because we have loved them so well. God, go with us as we leave today that we might be the church in the world by loving our neighbors. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.